Thank you for being here tonight. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. That's where we're going to be tonight. And we'll do a quick review over Hebrews chapter 10, where we were last time we were together. And uh, as you look over Hebrews chapter 10 there, we, we looked uh, at how Jesus actually was the fulfillment of the curtain that divided the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And it was through His flesh around verse 20 and 21 that that was ripped, that we now have uh, can go into the full presence of God, that we can draw near in verse 22 of chapter 10 with full assurance of faith. So is this wonderful blessing that we now have that Jesus on the cross as he gives up his spirit, the, the as his flesh dies, that literally the curtain in the temple is split, remember, from the top down. God has split it supernaturally, a four-inch thick, multi-story high curtain rips in half, symbolizing what has been done here in the greater realm. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this, but since his body was God and he was man, the curtain separated man, separated God. As he died, the curtain is ripped in half. If we carry on, just a quick review. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, look around verse 35. I'll read that one starting at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This passage is, is brought up in a different kind of way many times throughout Hebrews, and that is to make sure that you are of the saved. You have trusted in the one who can save you, that is the Christ. Don't assume that you're saved just because you're around other people who are saved or you're in a family of saved people, but make sure that you are saved. And then the Bible says here and elsewhere in Hebrews to continue in that. And that you can even have confidence in your salvation. Uh, again, this is just a review and I'm kind of chasing a rabbit already. But uh, seminary not too long ago had a poll done in which they asked the seminary students, can you know for sure if you're on your way to heaven, if you're truly going to make it? And are you for sure that you're going to make it? And the vast majority of them put down that they don't didn't know and they would not answer affirmative yes. And when probed underneath, there were other questions. The reason they marked of why they didn't know if they were on their way to heaven, they thought it was egotistical and prideful to assume that they were going to go to heaven. But that's the opposite that we get here in God's word. In verse 35 says we can be confident. It is okay for us as believers to be confident of where we are going to spend eternity because the confidence that we have is not in and of ourselves. So it's the opposite of ego. It's the opposite of pride because the one that we are trusting in for our salvation is not ourselves. Who is it? It is Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who lived the perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead, atoned for our sins. That's who we trust in as our Savior. So the, the book of Hebrews builds this up. Who is Jesus? He is the fulfillment of everything. The prophecies, the types, the shadows. He is the great high priest, the great sacrifice. He has gone in the presence of God for us. We go with Him. He is the anchor to our soul. So it's building up that our trust, our confidence, our faith is not in ourselves, 
but it is in him and that's perfectly fine and justified and should be the case for Christians to go through life with confidence in the one they have faith in and the one they have trusted in for their salvation. Without that confidence, the Christian bears very little fruit in their life because they're always wondering, am I saved? Am I not saved? Did I do enough good today or not enough bad? But we trust in him fully for our salvation. We have confidence in it. And as we are aware, he's making the point here at the end of chapter 10, there are some who retract, who shrink back, who are not truly of the faith. We've looked at the passage before in the Bible where it says they were with us, but they left us because they were not one of us. So there are in churches, in Christian groups, there are true believers, but there's also sheep and goat. It's goats in that same mix. And over time, oftentimes the goats are seen for who they truly are. But the writer says here in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And that's who we want to be. All right, let's continue on down then to some new passages here. Hebrews chapter 11. It is one of the longest chapters that we've looked at. I've broken it up into two sermons, but truly it could be broken up into three. But I'm just going to read through, starting at verse 1. Uh, probably go through verse 22. And then we'll go back through it and kind of look at this a little bit more closely. Hebrews chapter 11, starting at verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commended him by accepting his gifts and through his faith, Though he was, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, as he as did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. We will stop there. That is a lot of scripture to read. And obviously the theme of the entire thing is one word. What is it? It is faith. That's right. It probably, depending on your Bible, it has the little word right there above chapter 11. This is known as the faith chapter of the Bible. It's a who's who in the faith. And we've gone over this before, but the writer of Hebrews is steeped in what we call the Old Testament. He knows it extremely well. He knows the the types that Christ has fulfilled, the, the way the sacrifices went. He knows all the details of that, the high priest and the sacrifices, the day of atonement, the Passover. He knows all this extremely well, but he also knows all the characters of the Old Testament as well. And this chapter is rightly named the faith chapter. So let's go back to verse one and we'll hit some of the passages that we have just read in a little bit more detail. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, the people of old receive their commendation. So verse one by itself. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This passage is one of the most known and memorized passages in the entire Bible is extremely popular Uh, But we're going to look at it and exactly what it is talking about here. Sadly, oftentimes this passage is kind of ripped out of context. It's kind of isolated and people memorize it just as that one verse. And that that can be okay as long as you know what preceded it and what comes afterward. But we're going to see this passage kind of in light of the scriptures that are around it here. So it's very important to see exactly what is being talked about here in this verse one. This is not so much as many think a definition of faith, but is dealing with the aspect of faith that deals with patience and endurance to reach what lies ahead. And I think you can see this as it builds just right before there, where he is admonishing them to be confident of where they're going, to not shrink back. He says in verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. These ones who keep on going. This aspect of faith here in verse one is a continuance in staying in the faith, continuing this journey on because of the great hope that is ahead in every one of the characters in here. You see this aspect about them that they did not just live this life just for this life. That is the way the culture lives. That is the way those who do not believe in God of final judgment live. That is what we call hedonism. Live for now, live for my pleasure, live for today. Doesn't matter. The future doesn't matter. I want to live for now, this earth, this life, and that's it. But that is the opposite of the people characterized here. They're listed by their faith because their faith endured, it persevered through trial, through tribulation, through so much. And they weren't living just for the here. 
They were living for what is to come, the promises of God. So we see this exhibited here by them. Uh, Cross-reference to this verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11 is Romans 8, verse 23 through 25. I believe we'll have it. It says, and not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have, the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is Paul talking about here? He is saved, obviously. All right, He is in a right relationship with God. But this is not the end. It's, he has not received the very end of his salvation. Not until glorification but do we reach the end of our salvation. And even at this point in his life, He is groaning inwardly for that, the full adoption as sons, the end result of our salvation, the full redemption, even of our bodies that die and go into the ground, but will be remade and reunited with our souls. And that is what Paul is longing for, living for the promises of God. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is written in an extremely similar vein. And you can see why many people, even within this verse, uh, thought and some still think that Paul actually wrote the book of Hebrews. There are definite similarities there. But here he's laying out the same thing that's laid out here in verse 1 of chapter 11, that there is this future hope that our faith must endure through life to get to what the ultimate promises of God are. And here in this Romans passage, hope is often used today in a different way than it was used then. Hope, when it is used in the biblical text here, means something that is absolutely going to come true. If it's a fact of the future, that will absolutely come to pass. So Paul's hope is in the future, but it's not a wishful thinking you know, I hope I win the lotto or something like that. Or I hope, you know, to, to get this job one day. It's not like that. This hope, when the, he says the word hope, it is a matter of fact that it will come true. God has promised it. What, uh, who else could promise a greater promise than that? So he is hoping for that. Not that his hope uh, is making it come true, but it is a fact of his faith that he believes in. He knows it will come true. He will receive the full adoption as sons. He will receive the redemption of his bodies. And this is what this chapter is built on. These people who trusted in God, who trusted in his promises and did not live for here and now. They lived to be obedient to God, but they lived not for the pleasures of this world. They lived to be obedient to God and for the promises to come. Uh, A believer certainly receives much benefit in their salvation in this life. But the reality is that we still have major difficulties that we will face in this life. We have illness, we have sickness, our uh, bodies eventually stop working. There's family difficulties, there's financial difficulties. Obviously, this is not heaven. All right. Earth is not heaven. But that is what he is saying here. Our hope is their faith was in the ultimate heaven, in the full presence of God that we look forward to. And that shapes everything. Because those who live their life for here and now only try to get the benefit of this life here and now. But us who realize that this life is so temporary, 50, 60, 80, 90, 100 years, 
Felicia just mentioned to me the other day, uh, a person in Arkansas had just died, the oldest living person in the world at 116 years of age. Camden, Arkansas, resident there. Um, 116, long time, but, but nothing compared to eternity. So if you make it to 100 or 116, you know, that, that's, that's great and that's a long time, but there's eternity and that's what we're living towards. That's where we're aiming for. Uh, those who have faith in Christ also have faith in the future benefits that are to come due to that faith. Yet the full glory will not be known here. It will only be known then. First Corinthians two, uh, verse nine says this, I believe it have it on your screen. It says, as is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. This is a great passage to remember because the best heaven you can imagine is nothing. You cannot conceive it. You've never seen anything like it. You've never heard anything that's good enough to describe it. In your the best imagination, you cannot imagine what God has prepared for us. And knowing that this is to come, it changes the way you live now. You don't try to acquire everything here and hoard everything to and get to become the richest, the most, have everything that you possibly can here because you know that that is coming, that you have everything that, it, that God has for you, the ultimate blessings, all needs met uh, in his presence. The fullness of joy is coming. So that's what we, we, we emphasize this because it changes the way we live. One of my favorite uh, old time theologians of the 1500 says this. He says, faith directs us to things far off, which we do not as yet enjoy. It then it is then necessarily includes patience. Let me read it one more time. Faith directs us to things far off, which we do not as yet enjoy. It then necessarily includes patience. So this is the faith that is talked about in this chapter. These men who looked forward to receiving the full promises of God changed the way they lived their lives here. So what do all these people in this chapter have in common? Uh, it goes on, and we'll get into some other uh, men from the Old Testament next week. But what do they have in common? They, they lived by faith. They continued in the faith. They lived by faith. They died in the faith. It was a continuance. It was a perseverance. It was a never ending. They continued in their faith. And this was extremely important. If you think about the writer of the Hebrews and who he was writing, he was writing a Jewish audience. And this was extremely important for them because the Jews at that time and still many to this day connect their salvation to their genetic connection to Abraham and being removed now from the temple and not going to the temple. And now that these Christians are forming the, that the writer of Hebrews is writing here too, they have now been excommunicated by the Jewish community. And now the writer, though, is saying, no, 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 no. Here's what all these people have in common. It is not their genetic lineage that, that saves them. It is their faith in God. And that is what we have. That is what you have. So he is connecting them here by faith to these people as we should be connected to them as well. Because it's not genes that get us to heaven. It is faith, the same faith as these people who are listed here. Look at verse 13. We'll skip ahead for a moment and read through 16. These all died in faith, 
not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Look back at this. They they lived in faith and they died in faith. This used to be a very common scripture that was actually put on tombstones years ago. He died or she died in the faith. Why is that important? Well, that's extremely important. It's one thing to to say or try to look back on a person's life and say, I wonder if they were saved. I wonder if they were not saved. And someone steps up, says, "Eh, you know, they went to VBS one time and I found a card saying that, you know, they they walked an aisle or they made some kind of decision for Christ. But, But it's another thing to say that someone has lived their life in such a way that they now have gone on. They have died. And it's obvious to everyone that they lived and they died in the faith. This is what we want of ourselves. We want to continue on and continue in the faith to not be like those who who fall back, who shrink away and prove that they were never one with us. Well, they were not truly Christians, but we want to persevere every day, growing stronger, putting away sin, pursuing Christ more and living truly by faith because we have all of this ahead of us. Verse 13 Toward the end there says they acknowledge that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Our citizenship is not here. We're truly sojourners, uh, strangers, just just vagabonds passing through that our eternal home is yet to come. And these men lived in such a way, including one woman here listed, Sarah. They lived in such a way because they realized this was not the end of them, that eternity was yet to come and that God himself, verse 16 uh, has prepared for them and us a city. These were Jesus's comforting words right to his apostles. I'm about to leave you. They panicked. Uh, don't worry. I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And this changed them because they knew what was ahead. Stone me, crucify me, whatever. They didn't care because they knew the moment this life was over, they were in their eternal home. And it changes the way we live. Um, Let's look at this. Uh, Faith is only as good as the object of that faith, which is extremely important. Uh, Faith is a very popular term today. And uh, people have faith in almost anything and almost everything. And the whole uh, Oprah Winfrey type theology kind of says and she has said that there's, you know, one big wheel and in the middle there is God. and There's many ways to get there. All the spokes get there and you just choose your faith, whatever you want to call that faith. It all lands at God. You know, there's one mountain and there's many ways to get up that mountain and whatever faith you have will get there. That is not what is being said here in this passage at all. The Bible is clear. The book of Hebrews is clear that there is only one that we should have our faith in. Only one that can truly save us. You can have all the faith you want in the world and whoever. Buddha, uh, Muhammad, uh, Joseph Smith. You try to create your own religion, which is very popular today. Take some from this one, this one, this one, this one, and try to increase your amount of faith enough so you really do think it's going to save you. But it doesn't matter what feelings you're working on in here, right? What matters is the object of your faith. 
Does the object of your faith have the ability to save you or not? And the book of Hebrews is saying that there's only one, only one who is God and man, only one who is sinless, only one who is righteous, only one who paid the ultimate sacrifice to pay for our sins, only one who truly qualified to be the high priest anointed by God to represent us and pay for our sins for us. And it is Jesus Christ. So this is the one that we have faith in. So what is the object of your faith? It needs to be this Jesus. Also, let me mention this. I don't have this in my notes, but it is very common today also to say the word Jesus, to say the word God, but yet a different definition goes beside it. Now, obviously, the Mormons do this. Jehovah Witnesses do this as well. Even Muslims do this as well. They all say the, the word Jesus. They've changed him to just a, just a prophet, a very low prophet. Uh, but also, just in general, Christians in general, Oftentimes, we create our own definition to God that is not based on his revelation of himself. It's very dangerous. Uh, you're on shaky ground when you do that to create a God, even though you know better. You, you, you've trusted originally in this God, but, but then you start to add things to him, take away things, and you change who he is. That is very important to stay true to who Jesus truly is and make sure he is the object of our faith. All right, let's move on. Verse three. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is a radical passage of the Bible in our day. Look back at it with me one more time. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. This is a huge passage. It is equivalent, we'll get to in just a moment, but Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is no meaning in life without agreement to this passage. Look back at it again with me if you don't mind. Just look at how important this is. But, but without this passage, and unless you agree with this passage, I would really say that there's, there's no meaning in life. Uh, think about it, uh, that somehow time, chance, and luck created everything, not God. That life came about by some accident. That, there, that li there, your life is truly no more valuable than a mosquito, a germ, a flea, a tick. And upon death, you just go back to being dirt. Now go have a wonderful, happy, meaningful life, right? If you truly deny that God has created the universe and attribute it to some accident, luck, time, chance, then there is absolutely no meaning in life. Why would you even do anything? Why, where is your purpose? Why, why, why do anything, right? And that's what he's saying here. If you don't believe this, then all you're left with is this life, this earth. At first, it leads to hedonism, sin as much as you can, pleasure as much as you can. But then many people found out that ah, too much of that, it messes you up, makes you die young, etc. So try to modify that some. And it just leads to this ultimate depression that this is it. This is really the end. And there's no purpose in my life and nothing truly matters. This is what drives atheists literally insane at the end of their lives because they, they, they desire so much to fight Christians and to have debates with Christians. And my reason is, uh, my question is always, why? 
Why even have that discussion, right? If you're truly an atheist and don't believe in God and believe that we're wasting our time, then let us waste our time. Who cares? If there's no meaning in life, there is no God, and you end, when this life is over, you go back to dirt, then man, go, go to Disney World. Don't have this debate with me right now, right? Do something happy right now. But no, they want to debate because they hate the fact that we believe that there is a God. And deep down inside, Romans chapter 1 lets us know that deep down in their heart, they know there's a God as well. And they hate that fact. And they spend their life trying to kill God, but they can't do it because all they have to do is look around. And it's so obvious that God does exist. So this passage is extremely important. And if you have a Bible there, make sure you write in beside it. Genesis 1.1, because they are so similar. John uh, 1 as well. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why is this the most attacked passage in all of God's word? Is because it shows that God existed before the creation. It shows that God, something higher, something more powerful than the universe itself, created everything. I'm not going to get into great detail with this, but I do want to go into it a little bit with you tonight. Uh, something is called the cosmological argument for God. And you can look this up later if you would like to, but it's good to kind of get your mind wrapped around something like this. You might not have thought these thoughts before. So this is kind of an introduction to what we call Christian apologetics, uh, how to defend our faith uh, when such an argument does come up. And this is this is one of the arguments that you can can get down and that you can have in your head as well. Uh, the cosmological argument, you might be able to see it, uh, put a lot on that screen. Uh, in the realm of our experience, Everything that we know is caused by something else. There cannot, however, be an infinite regress of causes. For if that were the case, the whole series of causes would never have begun. There must therefore be some uncaused cause, unmoved mover, or necessary being. And this we, or all people, call God. Anyone looking honestly at the evidence must reach this conclusion. So, Basically, this argument goes that there is cause and effect, cause and effect, cause and effect. You're here because of parents. They're here because of their parents. They're here because of their parents. Pick any item and you keep going back. A tree, a, a pine tree because of another pine tree. And a, you keep going back, 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 back. But the point is you cannot go back to an infinite regression of causes that eventually there must be something that is uncaused. Something that has the power to create in and of himself. Something that is outside of the creation that is more powerful and who exists eternally without being created. So this argument says, simply says, just look around. Uh, obviously, everything is caused. That, and is the, there's cause and effect. And the, these things that we see at this building was the effect of something. You're the effect of something. But you can't keep on going back forever. It, it's impossible to keep going back. There has to be something. This unmoved mover, this uncaused cause, or, which we call God. We're going to get into this just a little bit tonight. Um, in, let me read this to you. In 1916, Albert Einstein, everyone's heard of him, made a discovery that he absolutely did not like. It was his theory of general relativity. It meant that the universe had a beginning and was not eternal. Einstein found this discovery so irritating and against what he believed, he wanted the universe to be self-existent 
and not reliant on an outside cause. But the universe appeared to be one big effect. He disliked what his findings showed so much that he changed his numbers to, per, to show that it was not so. However, years later, 1919, a famous scientist, then in 1922, another top cosmologist and mathematician proved that his original theory was absolutely correct, therefore proving that the universe was not eternal. The cosmologist that proved Einstein's theory of general relativity, Arthur Eddington, later wrote, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. In 1927, the expanding of the universe was observed by astronomers Edwin Hubble. You've heard of that name before. This super powerful telescope showed a red shift in the light from every other galaxy. To an average person, this means nothing. But to all astronomers, this clearly meant that the universe was expanding. Finally, in 1927, Einstein got his first look through the telescope himself. Following this, he finally admitted that his denial of the theory of general relativity was his greatest blunder of his life. He then redirected his efforts to knowing that the universe was an effect and there was a greater cause of it than the universe itself. He said, I now want to know how God created the world. So what, what was the problem here? Why were they so mad about finding out that the universe uh, was an effect, that something had caused it? Because now, it looks like Genesis 1-1, even through scientific investigation, is absolutely true. Everything points to the fact before this, an atheist had hope, Einstein had hope, many of these uh, great scientists and mathematicians had hope that the universe was eternal, that it was stagnant, that it was not growing, it was not expanding, that it had always been, forever will be. But now the law of general relativity, uh, the, the red shift as they look through the Hubble telescope, they see the universe expanding, which meant that the universe had a beginning, that it had a start. And how could this start happen? Where did this start come from? How could it possibly be? It proved that the universe was an effect, meaning something greater, someone more powerful than even the universe outside of time, space and matter spoke. And created everything. Here we see in the book of Hebrews. Here we see in Genesis 1.1. Who is this that does all this? Who is the unmoved mover? It is God Himself. The scientific evidence overwhelmingly confirmed that the universe exploded into being out of nothing at some point. Alright? Either someone created something out of nothing or no one created something out of nothing. Let me read that one more time. Either someone created something out of nothing, or no one created something out of nothing. I have it on the screen here, but here's what the Christian says. God created everything. All right, the atheist says nothing created everything. Think about that for a moment. All right, log that away in your head. The Christian says God created everything. But yet the atheist will say, how could you possibly believe that? How could you believe that God created everything? But which one does it take more faith to believe? Look closely. The atheist says nothing created everything. What can nothing do? 
Nothing. <laughs> it can do absolutely nothing, right? Uh, no thing. It has no power. It has no ability to do anything. It has no energy. It has no, no mass. It can do absolutely nothing. So the Christian says God created everything, yet we get laughed at. The atheist says nothing created everything, and that one is supposed to be more scientific, all right? Absolutely not. Which one requires more faith? In a book I recently read, it takes more faith to be an atheist. It's based on this argument. That the Christian, yes, we have faith, but our faith is grounded in truth and in logic and even in science as well. But the atheist has, has to have more faith because they believe everything came from absolutely nothing. All right, moving on. Uh, the Big Bang Theory, a cosmological theory holding that the universe originated around 20 billion years ago from the violent explosion of a very small agglomeration of matter the size of a pinhead blew up it was extremely dense and high temperature and it blew up and there is the universe, all right? This was being taught in our public schools. Over 50 million students are enrolled in public school on any day uh, of the school year, 50 million. The main educator of this atheistic worldview is the public schools and colleges. God has been officially removed from the school system, from the educational system. So when it comes to situations of science and when it comes to being taught uh, science, this is what is being taught, that there is no God, that God did not create, but yet everything came from nothing. And then there is no true purpose in life. There's no true meaning in life either, right? If you teach a young person that everything has come from nothing and that we are here only as a product of evolution, then why does anything, any behavior even matter? Uh, if you get caught in school cheating off of a friend, that should actually be rewarded, right? Survival of the fittest, you know? You, you've overcome. You didn't study, but you cheated off someone else. That should be rewarded. But, but instead, they're called out and punished. And it doesn't make sense. Because if you take this to its logical extreme, that life is meaningless, it doesn't matter, we came from nothing, we came by accident, uh, different kinds of one cell, single cell,